The sermon text this morning is found in the book of James, chapter 1. We're reading verses 19 to 27. And again, we are continuing our series in the book of James, from verse 19 to 27 in chapter 1. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself righteous and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, we're going to invite Reverend uh, Logan Keck to come and give the word for the day. All right. Hey, everybody. Good to be in front of this little tiny camera that I'm looking at. Uh, I guess the saddest thing so far was that we didn't get to have the time for greeting. So we can see your little texts coming through on the bottom of the comments. So, yeah, send some emojis or something. Let us, <laughs> let us see that you're out there. Um, this is a, a strange experience, standing alone and, uh, well, with, with my two brothers here. Uh, Adam is, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go off script here and show you what we got going on. Here's, uh, here's our empty, there's Adam, Pastor Mason. Here's our empty sanctuary. Um, computers and all this stuff. Um, pretty incredible, honestly, what we're capable of doing these days. And so, um, right here at the outset of this sermon, you know, I started studying this passage at the beginning of the week, and uh, I'll be honest, when I first read the that final verse that said, keep oneself from being polluted by the world, um, I had a very different vision of how we would be doing that. Uh, we have taken that very literally this week, um, but I hope that wherever you are, you are safe. You're taking proper precautions. This is a kind of unprecedented time in the modern world. We were spending some time praying about it this morning. So I'd love to take a moment right here uh, all together to bow our heads, to pray, to thank God that we can still hear the word, that we can still sing, uh, that we can still worship um, but also to, to pray for what's happening in our community. And we'll have an extended time of prayer as well after the sermon. Um, join me in prayer. 
Father, I want to thank you for the gift of this technology that we can use. Um, I want to thank you that you have enabled us to be wise and to um, follow the recommendations of medical professionals and people who who know what is the best way to respond to this current crisis, um, and that you've enabled us to, to continue our worship even in the midst of these drastic changes. Father, we thank you for the church. Lord, we thank you that uh, throughout history, your church has dwelt uh, in the midst of turmoil and all kinds of crises and all kinds of uncertainty and upheaval, and you have always been faithful. And so, Lord, we pray today as, as our church, as uh, hundreds and thousands of churches around the country today are worshiping online and uh, not able to gather, we pray that you would bless your people. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present with us, that we would... Uh, Although we are absent from one another, Lord, that we would experience the, the community of the church. And Lord, I pray that um, you would protect us. Protect especially those who are in the, the most fragile categories, those who um, are at risk from this virus that is going around. Lord, would you help us as Christians to love and to serve our neighbors? Um, I pray that even this act of being separated from one another would be perceived as a service, an act of love um, for those around us. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word this morning? Uh, would you help us to get something out of it? Would you help us to focus as we're looking at screens and probably around distractions and, um, and our kids can't be in childcare? <laughs> Lord, would you help us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's get into it. So this morning we're looking at James again, James chapter 1, the end of it. And one of the major themes of this book that we have mentioned is the theme of becoming spiritually whole, um, that we would be complete, that we would be lacking nothing. Now in this passage, James, he points us to the Word of God as a source of power that can change our lives. He says, the Word of God helps us to become spiritually whole, to become those kinds of people that He desires for us to become. So, if you've been around the church for a long time, uh, you, I'm sure, have heard over and over and over again that you need to read your Bible. You don't need somebody to give a special message that it's important if you're a Christian for you to read your Bibles. But, what I hope that might come out of this this morning, what I hope we might get as we try and study this portion of Scripture is not a deepened sense of guilt, not a reminder of your lack of discipline and how you haven't done enough, but what I hope we get out of this this morning instead is a hunger and a thirst that we would recognize what a glorious gift we have been given in the Word of God, Amen. and that we would realize that we have full access to this gift any time that we want to. And so this morning, I hope we, we could see three things. One, I want to talk about uh, what is it that makes Scripture unique? What makes Scripture unique? Secondly, what makes Scripture powerful? And then finally, what makes Scripture freeing? 
What makes scripture unique? What makes it powerful? What makes it freeing? All right, so what makes scripture unique? Let's, let's look at verse 25. I don't know if you noticed the language that James uses, but he says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law. He calls scripture the perfect law. How do you feel about that? A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that as people, we are enamored with this idea of perfection. And especially as people approach perfection, uh, we, we become attracted to that. We, we, wanna, we want to see people rise to be the best, to be perfect. And, and oftentimes, it's, a, it's more subjective in our culture. It, it becomes a source of debate, right? When we talk about the perfect athlete or artist or, or business mogul, whatever it is, we, we like to debate their merits. We like to pick it apart. We like to talk about the pros and cons. We put forward our champion by finding the flaws in the other, right? So we talk about, you know, is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron James? Is it Aretha Franklin, or, or maybe it's Adele, or is it Steve Jobs, or, or Bill Gates? When I first started attending Christ the King, which has been a long time now, like 15 years or something, um, when I just came there as a student, there was a long-standing debate between the senior pastor and the college pastor. The senior pastor, who was a baby boomer, he insisted, he said that the, the greatest band of all time, the most perfect band, was the Beatles. And he, he felt very strongly about that opinion. Now, our college pastor, who was a, a Gen Xer, he disagreed. He said the greatest band of all time was U2. And of course, to settle this debate, he brought it to his college class full of us millennials, I'm a very old millennial. <laughs> but he said, well, you got to help us decide. Who is it? Who is the perfect band? Who's the greatest band? Is it the Beatles or is it you too? And of course we said, you're both wrong. Now I won't tell you who we said it was. <laughs> maybe we said Dave Matthews band. Maybe we were, maybe we were wrong. Um, but the point is, in our culture, the idea of perfection is subjective. It's something to be judged. It's something to be picked apart and critiqued and debated. But the Word of God is not like that. The Word of God is truly and uniquely perfect. And that's a challenge for us to hear in our culture today. Because if we're being honest... Some parts of Scripture, they don't seem perfect. There are some parts of Scripture that we love. There are some parts that we say, oh yeah, that, that is absolutely, that is perfection. When, for instance, Jesus says, love your neighbor. Or when he says, turn the other cheek. We love that stuff. Or even here in this passage, the last verse where it says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. We love that. 
justice, mercy, caring for the poor. Those things seem perfect. But there are other parts of Scripture that rub us the wrong way. Those parts, they tend to be more like the last half of that verse where it says that also what God wants is for us to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. The part of Scripture that talks about our inward morality, especially those places that tell us that we as Christians are going to be asked, we are going to be required to be different from the rest of the world. That's where we start to critique Scripture. That's when Scripture starts to make us uncomfortable. Right? It's when things get countercultural. Then, when we get to those places, we start to say, well, maybe this doesn't mean exactly what it seems to mean. Maybe if we take this word right here and we shift it this way, or maybe if we just forget about this whole chapter entirely, maybe if we put this piece aside, well, then I can keep living and thinking like everyone else and still call myself a Christ follower. But James, by using this term perfect law, he is reminding us that there's not a part of Scripture we can dismiss, but that every part of Scripture is God-breathed, that it is all perfect, every bit of it, and that if we are viewing Scripture rightly, then we, we should not be the ones sitting in judgment over the law of God and saying, well, you know, here I like this part, uh, but that part I don't really like, that part I really want to change. But instead, we should be letting Scripture look at us and say that. Amen. Scripture should look at our lives and say, you know, this part of her I love, but this part of her needs to change. This part of him is glorious, but this part of him, we need to see some transformation take place. See, that's the uniqueness of Scripture. It comes from God it is his perfect perception of the universe. And if that's true, if this word is God's perception of the world, well, of course, we're going to be offended by it. Of course, at some points, it's going to rub us the wrong way because we are not perfect. We're imperfect. We're sinners. We are flawed. Our perception of the world is also flawed. And if you don't believe me, well, just think about the way, think about some of the things people believed 100 years ago. Or 100 years before that. Or 100 years before that. It's been the same in every generation that, that we disagree with the worldview of of people. Our worldviews are shifting. And you know, it's going to be the same 100 years from now. In 2120, there's going to be people who look back at what we thought, and they're going to be embarrassed. But you know, in that day, God's word and his commands will be the same. His word is perfect. His word is true. 
That's what makes it unique. So what makes it powerful? In the book of Hebrews, there's a a very famous, well-known verse. It says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. He says that God's word is is powerful. It's alive. It's active. But, maybe not all the time. Maybe not for everyone. For a lot of people, this book is just a book. It's pretty dull. It's confusing. It's hard to understand. and, And they're not very interested in understanding it to begin with. Frank Barker is the name of a pastor who started a large church um, in the South. Uh, he's long since retired. And, um, but he had a, a really great testimony because he came to faith in the middle of seminary. He came to faith as he was working at a church. He, he was preaching and everything seemed dull and lifeless to him. And he said, something is wrong. I don't think I really believe this. And he went to his friend and he asked him, am I really even a Christian? And this guy, to this seminary-educated man, he gave him a little gospel tract that very simply laid out the basics, and it said that salvation is a free gift of God, that you don't have to earn it, that it's, you receive it by faith. And whatever that man said in that moment, God used that to awaken Frank's soul. And this powerful faith came alive in him. And he was trying to convert everybody. He said he was even trying to convert his parents. And they said, we're already Christians. You don't have to do this. He was on fire. And and as he was on fire, he also started to get irritated. Because he thought, how could I have been in the church so long? How could I have grown up in this Christian community and never heard the truth my whole life? How could I have gone through seminary and never heard the truth? And this is a quote from his autobiography. He said, I wondered why no one had told me that salvation was a gift. And then I thought, isn't it strange that Martin Luther didn't know that? The reason I thought about Martin Luther was because I just read his commentary on Galatians for a course I was taking in seminary. And so I thought if Luther had known that salvation is a gift, he certainly would have written about it in his book. And so I wanted to see how he missed it. So I pulled the commentary off the shelf and I reread it. And to my amazement, it was on every page. You see what I'm saying here? Frank had been in the Christian orbit. He'd been in the church his whole life, but the word was not alive in him. And so it had no power. And that's why one of the first things that James says in this passage is in verse uh, 21, he says, accept the word that is planted in in you. Accept the word which is planted in you. 
The first thing that gives the word power is that the Holy Spirit has to come and plant it in our hearts. And that means also, if you are listening to this, if you're at wherever you are watching this, and, and you have to admit honestly that the word of God is dead to you, that you find nothing attractive or enticing about it, maybe the first thing you need to do is not commit simply to, to read it more often, but instead ask God to reveal himself. Ask God to wake you up to the good news that salvation is a free gift of his grace. Ask him to plant the word in your heart, to awaken your soul to the glory of the good news that you might have the desire. That's the first instruction, to accept the word that's planted in you. Secondly, he says, that we need to, what makes the scripture powerful is when we study it intently. Verse 23, it says, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, they will be blessed in what they do. So in those verses, he compares someone who hears the word but doesn't do it to a person who looks in the mirror and immediately turns around and forgets their face. And the point of that illustration is, well, it's a waste of time to do that. Right? The, the purpose of looking into a mirror is to see what you look like. And likewise, if you are going to Scripture and it is making no impact in your life, that it's making no difference to you whatsoever, it's a waste of your time. And so he says, like that illustration, we cannot simply glance at the Word of God and, and move on. But we need to study it intently to understand it. Now, I know I just said that one part of Scripture is that the Spirit implants it in us, that He puts it in our hearts and it comes alive to us. But that doesn't mean that we're going to learn Scripture by osmosis, right? If you put the Bible under your pillow at night, it's, it's not going to seep into your brains. It takes time to learn Scripture, right? Pastor Mason's over here. He knows it takes energy. It takes effort. And not just, not just a schedule. There's, there's even a spiritual element to our study. I think about um, Psalm 63, where the psalmist says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What drives us to Scripture is a deep, God-given longing for connection to Him. It's not just about Bible knowledge. It's not just about being able to, to win trivia or something like that. What drives us to Scripture, what we go to Scripture for, is to hear from God, 
We go to him so that he can speak truth to our hearts. If we are following Christ, we need his word in our life daily. And we need to not just be running through some kind of dutiful reading list, but we need to read it intently. We need to slow down. We need to contemplate these words, sit in them, understand them. And, and I do. I mean, it's very practical. It's very basic. But I do want to encourage you. You should develop some regular habit of being in the Word. And I don't really care how you do it. I, I have done everything under the sun at one time or another, right? I've read one year through the Bible plans. I've read three year through the Bible plans. I've read 90 day through the Bible plans. And sometimes I've read one book of the Bible for months. I don't care what you do. But what you need to do is put yourself in front of the mirror of God's word daily and look at it intently. You need to let God show you who you are and who he created you to be. You need to stare intently into the word so he can show you those deep cracks, those flaws, those wounds in your soul so that he can come in and he can heal. And as you do that, you're going to be changed. And that's the third point here. He says we need to accept the word that's planted in us. We need to look intently into it. And then finally, he says, we need to do it. If you were here, I would maybe make you repeat that or something. <laughs> but we need to do it. If you have received God's word, if you believe the words of life, you will be changed. Yeah. You'll be changed by them. Amen. You cannot stare intently into God's law by the power of his spirit without finding a million places where you need to be changed. You can't look into perfection without becoming painfully aware of your imperfection. You know, one of the major examples that he gives in this passage is anger. Verse 19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. In verse 26, he says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. That's a pretty practical instruction. And I have had those verses on my mind all week in preparation for this sermon. And I cannot tell you how much I have had to deal with my own anger this week. I got angry about something that was so dumb and, and trivial one morning this week. I can't even remember what it was. But you know what I do remember? I remember being angry, and then I remember being angry about being angry because I had to preach this sermon, right? <laughs> I didn't want to be angry this week. And so I had to repent. And I had to, to change. I had to not just 
read the words, but do them. And that's what makes Scripture powerful. The power of the Word comes when we allow ourselves to be scrutinized by God's law. When we let God hold up, when we let God hold up a mirror to our lives and show us what He intends to change. And then by the power of His grace, we surrender our will and our desires to His. So that's what makes Scripture powerful. Now let me ask a third question. What makes Scripture freeing? That's what James calls it, right? Freeing. He calls it the perfect law that gives freedom. But I don't know about you, um, but I would not, freeing is not the word I would choose when I look at my shortcomings, when I feel guilty about all the ways I have failed. I don't feel free when I keep coming up against the same old sin and the same old mess in my life that has been clinging to me after so many years of fighting against it. That doesn't make me feel free. How are we supposed to understand that? Well, I think James has a great illustration in this passage that, that helps me uh, to understand a little bit better. And maybe it'll help you as well. He, he, in verse 21, he says that we should therefore get rid of all moral filth and evil in our lives. And that Greek word there, get rid of, is a very common word in the New Testament. It means to take off. Mm -hmm. uh, and when, when he talks about being covered in filth, it's actually, the, the image there is that we are clothed in filth, that we need to take it off. And the same verb comes up in Romans 13, where he says, for instance, therefore let us put aside the deeds of darkness. So take off the deeds of darkness and, and put on the armor of light. Or Hebrews chapter 12, where he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us take off, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. It's a, a verb that is showing us how our sin uh, is, it's dirty garments that we're wearing. And there's another famous passage in Scripture that tells a story of someone clothed in dirty garments. It, it's in Zechariah. It's a vision that the prophet receives. And in that passage, well, let me just read it to you. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. He has a vision of the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin. And I will put fine garments on you. 
And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Now in that culture, in that community, the high priest was the most righteous man in town. He was as good as you get. And yet, Zechariah was, was able to see in that moment that standing in the presence of God, even the most holy man, had nothing to claim. That he was clothed in filth. And not only that, Satan was standing next to him, accusing him of all his sins. And that is not only a picture of the high priest. That is a picture of all of us. No matter how good we might appear on the outside, before the Lord, each and every one of us is clothed in filthy rags. And we have a long list of sins and shortcomings standing there to accuse us. But in Christ, God has given us new garments. On the cross, Jesus put on our filthy rags and gave us his spotless ones. He took the penalty for our sin by his death on the cross. He took the shame for our sin so that we don't have to bear it anymore. And in Christ, that means since he has taken our sin, since he has taken our shame, since he has taken our filth, that means that now we can look at the law of God and when we get to these difficult commands that say things like, don't be angry. When we hear these things, and we remember we're not just supposed to read it, but we're actually supposed to do it, we don't have to be crushed by guilt. We don't have to see the law as just a standard that we cannot live up to, but instead, we get to see it as a life we have been freed up to live. We can see it as a, a, a life of hope that we are now invited into. Apart from the Spirit, no one can live a life that glorifies God. But through the cross, the law becomes a means of life instead of a means of death. Instead of being a weight to crush us, it's a path to victory. The law, it shows us now how we can live life in a way that's going to bring us the most freedom and the most joy. And maybe you've heard this illustration before. It's a very common one. Lots of preachers trot it out, and I will too. <laughs> in, in Christ, the law for us is like the, the owner's manual for a car. Right? The owner's manual will tell you that you need to, to take care of your car in a certain way. Every 3,000 miles, you need to change the oil. Now, technically, you can choose not to do that. The car will still probably run for a while. But if you choose that, eventually you're going to suffer some consequences. Your car will not operate to its full capacity. Now, apart from Christ... The law, it can only show us that we're hopelessly guilty. The law, it can't save us. But in Christ, now that we are freed from the penalty of the law, it shows us how we can operate to the fullest of our abilities. 
It shows us how we can live to our full potential. The law, it gives us restraints. It gives us commands. It tells us things that we should do. But those restraints, if we abide by them, will bring us freedom. And so, as I close up, my invitation to you this week, we, we are in kind of unprecedented territory right now. We're headed into a week of uncertainty. But one thing I, I believe most of us are experiencing is we got a lot of free time, at least more than we had. <laughs> Things are different. We're at home. We're, we're sitting around. We, this, is this not a perfect opportunity for us to drink deeply of God's word? It's a slow down. Don't just fill up. Don't, don't binge every show you've been meaning to binge now that you're stuck indoors. But use some of this time and, and hear from God. Hear what he has to say to you. Let him show you in the mirror who you are. And, and don't just hear the word, but by the power of his grace, would we do it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we ask, Father, that you would be with us now. Would you help us to apply this word? In your name we pray. Amen.